Happy Wednesday night to you, church family. Uh, let me ask you to get your copy of the scripture and find 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, we're going to look tonight at the subject matter, Christian Appetites and Identity. And let me remind you that traditionally in our church family, the week of July 4th, we don't have Wednesday night. And so a week from today, uh, we will not be meeting through this avenue, uh, but we will, of course, the following uh, Wednesday night. But anyway, I just wanted to give you a reminder on that. Uh, again, find 1 Peter chapter 2. And let's begin reading at verse 1. Peter says there, Therefore rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. You know, one thing that we've always got to consider as Christians, we've got to evaluate our appetites our desires. I think of a young man in the scripture, the, the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10 who came to Jesus and said that he wanted to follow Jesus and Jesus no doubt could see the idolatry in his heart and that he had the wrong cravings, the wrong desires. He loved his wealth. He was a wealthy man. And Jesus told him to go and sell all that he has. Now, again, God didn't tell everybody that, but Jesus knew this young man's heart. And so he said, go and sell everything that you have and come and follow me. And the young man was unwilling to do so because he was very rich. 
he had a problem with his appetites, worldly appetites. Three years ago on a Sunday morning, I gave you an illustration. Every time I read this illustration, it still speaks powerfully to me. Uh, it's about a book written by Thomas Costain. And the title of the book, it's a historical book, The Three Edwards, and it describes the life of Reynald, uh, Reynald III, who was a, four, a 14th century duke in what is now the country of Belgium. He was grossly obese. Now, we know that some people are obese because of their genes, uh, their heredit uh, hereditary nature. They can't help it. They try to control their diet. They try to exercise, but nothing they do seems to work. But other people we know are obese because they have a problem with their appetite. They can never get enough food. And that's how Reynold was. He, it's said that he was a glutton. He had a violent quarrel with his younger brother, Edward, and Edward led a successful revolt against him. Now, Edward captured Reynold, but didn't kill him. Instead, he built a room around Reynold in the Newkirk Castle and promised Reynold that he could regain his title and his property if he were able to leave the room. Now, this wouldn't have been difficult for most people because the room had normal-sized windows and doors. But again, because Reynold was so enormous in size, he couldn't fit through the door. Now, added to the cruelty, what Edward did is he had some of the finest chefs in Belgium fix delicacies for Reynold every day and brought all this food to Reynold. And Reynold just continued to eat and eat and eat. And for 10 years, he was not able to leave that room. Well, Edward died and people tore down a wall so that Reynold could be freed from that room. But by this time, again, because of his weight issues and poor health, he also died within a year. Very tragic, tragic story of battles between two brothers and uh, Reynolds' appetites that became his undoing. Peter in this chapter is talking about Christian appetites and what our appetite should be. You know, in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, Peter says that we have a wonderful salvation in Jesus Christ, a salvation that's so great, even the angels long to look into it. Well, in light of God's saving grace, uh, Peter said that we're to live in hope and we're to live in holiness and in love. Peter went on to point out that the message of this salvation was made known to us through the Word of God. You know, it's like I preach Sunday morning in the Word of God. We learn first and foremost about our need of a Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. And we learn about our sin. We learn all this through Scripture. Peter is saying essentially the same thing. And Peter compares God's Word to seed. And it's unlike seed in the world. 
uh, because whatever is produced from seed in the world will eventually wilt and die. But God's Word compared to seed never dies. God's Word remains and abides forever. Well, that naturally sets up what Peter begins writing next here at the beginning of chapter 2. What we see in this passage is that we're to be a people of changed appetites and we're to know what our true identity is. And knowing this ought to change our actions and our lifestyle each and every day. We are to crave the Word of God. Uh, we're to be like a baby craving milk. We're to crave the Word of God. And if we do that, it's going to have tremendous uh, application in our lives. First thing I want you to see with me tonight is that we are to develop the proper appetite for God's Word. Develop the proper appetite for God's Word. And you can write down beside that verses 1 to 3. Just as God's Word is necessary for salvation, His Word is also necessary for Christian growth. Peter gives the image here of a newborn baby craving milk. I remember what my parents have told me many times about when I was a child. I was a milk addict. They said it was amazing the gallons of milk that I would go through. I just drank milk all day long. They couldn't keep milk in the house. I was a milk addict. Well, Peter is saying here that like a newborn baby craving milk, a Christian is to be that way with the Word of God. Now, folks, let me, let me spend a moment going over a few things. As I mentioned a moment ago, God's Word is instrumental in our salvation. Think with me again about that. 2 Timothy chapter 3 talks about that. James chapter 1 verse 17 talks about that. Romans 1, 16 and 17 talks about that. And Romans 10, 17 speaks about that. How God's Word is instrumental in our salvation. And if you think about your own testimony when you got saved, chances are it was you were, you were either reading the Scripture for yourself, you were seeking, uh, seeking God through it. God's Spirit was working on you and drawing you to Himself and because of that, you were seeking Him and you were reading His Word. Or maybe you were in a revival service or a church service and somebody was preaching the Word of God to you and you came under conviction. What I'm saying is, if you'll think about your own salvation, I can guarantee you the Word of God was instrumental in that. Well, the point is, if God's Word is instrumental in our salvation, why wouldn't we want to continue to study it? As newborn believers, we ought to crave it all the more because God's given us a new nature, a new nature that desires to know Him. And so it ought to naturally follow on the heels of that, that we would have an appetite for God's Word. We would want to know everything we, we could know about God and Christian living through His Word. You know, I remember when I first got saved, and, 
And God put a desire deep in my heart to know His Word better. And uh, I started with the book of Acts because of the history of the church that the book of Acts records and the missionary journeys. And then I went into the uh, epistles and letters of the New Testament because those epistles and letters talk about how to live now that you're a Christian. And so that's a place that I started studying in the Word of God. Now, don't get me wrong, every part of the Word of God is just as important as any other part. Uh, you know, a, a section you read in the book of Leviticus is just as inspired as a section you read in the book of Romans. It's all the inspired Word of God. And, and we ought to crave all of it. We ought to desire to read it, to study it, to know it. Because God has special treasures in His Word for us. Let me encourage you sometime to sit down with Psalm 119 and read everything that the psalmist is saying about the Word of God and the effect that the Word of God has in his life. That's the longest chapter in the Bible and the psalmist just goes on and on talking about the benefits of the Word of God in a believer's life. So let me encourage you to study Psalm 119 on your own. But again, just as the Bible is instrumental in our conversion, it's instrumental in our growth. As 2 Timothy 3.17 says, through the Word of God, God equips us. God grows us and He equips us to do whatever God leads us to do. Now, look again at the first part of verse 1. He says, Peter says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Folks, if we're going to have a healthy appetite for God's Word, then there's going to have to be some things that we lay aside, some things that we turn away from. Let's continue with the food analogy. Let's think about junk food for a moment. If you're going to have a healthy appetite for healthy food, you can't sit down 30 minutes before a meal and fill up on junk food. Junk food will kill your appetite. Well, sin will kill your appetite for the Word of God. It's wisely been said, either this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. And so he says we have to lay aside malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. What's he talking about? He's talking about repentance. Repentance. Now folks, we don't hear, we don't hear nearly enough today about repentance. You know, I've even heard preachers like Joel Osteen say that he doesn't preach on sin or repentance because he, he says people feel bad enough about themselves already. Well, in all seriousness, uh, I'm of the opinion that Joel Osteen is probably a false shepherd. Uh, I can't imagine a, tr a, a true shepherd denying the need of repentance 
and acknowledging sin and how we need to turn away from it. Repentance is to be an ongoing part of the Christian's life. You and I, this side of heaven, will never outgrow our need of repentance. Now, hopefully, as we grow in the Lord, we will gain more and more victory over sin. But don't kid yourself. We live in a fallen world. We have an enemy. The flesh is weak at times. And so we have a continuing need to deal with sin and repentance. A number of years ago, we had a church member that wanted me to promote and preach on the Wesleyan doctrine of complete sanctification. I refuse to do so, and I still refuse to do so because I don't think it's biblical. Complete sanctification says that all of a sudden, maybe tomorrow or maybe next week, you'll wake up one day, and if you're a growing Christian, you'll be so godly all of a sudden or have all the right desires all of a sudden that you won't sin anymore. It's not that you're not able to sin anymore, but you just won't. And, and I told him, I said, I'm not preaching that. I don't know about you, but I know my own heart. I still need to repent. I think, I think Christians go through their whole life needing to repent. First uh, John chapter 1 talks about the reality of sin and need of repentance in our lives. And I don't believe that this side of heaven, we grow out of that. Now true, we ought to grow more and more in Christ-likeness, and sin ought to have less and less uh, uh, a place in our lives. I, I, I do believe that, but I just don't think we're ever going to reach some kind of pinnacle this side of heaven where sin is not even a factor in our lives anymore. So repentance is something we need to be mindful of. There are things that we need to turn away from, and that's what Peter is addressing here. There's to be an intake of God's Word, and there's to be a laying aside of sin. Now, notice the sins that he mentions and then other sins that grow out of that. Uh, he mentions malice or anger. Think of all of the sins that grow out of that. Because of malice or anger, you might have to repent of wrong things, bad things that you've said about people. How about deceit? Same thing here. Many other things grow out of that, as well as hypocrisy and envy and, and slander. Again, sin will keep you from God's Word if you don't deal with it. And that's why he begins here in verse 1 by saying, rid yourselves of these things. Rid yourselves of these things. And while you're doing that, like newborn babes, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. Isn't that a wonderful motivation? Now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. You've experienced salvation in the Lord Jesus. You've experienced His kindness, His grace, His mercy. Uh, 
that ought to make us desire to grow in the Lord all the more because of the kindnesses and mercy that God's already shown to us. Well, the second thing I want you to write down with me tonight, embrace your new identity as the people of God. Embrace your new identity as the people of God, beginning there in verse 4. Folks, one of the glorious truths in the Old Testament is that God gave instructions about the building of the temple. And you'll remember in the Old Testament, there, first of all, at the tabernacle and then the temple, that's where God would meet with His people. God gave instructions in the wilderness about how to design the tabernacle. And then once they got into to the promised land about the temple. You read those early chapters when Solomon was building the temple and then dedicated it. Uh, afterwards, the glory of God moved in. At times, in the tabernacle and the temple, the glory of God would be so wonderful and so powerful that the priest and the people could not even go in. Imagine how awesome that must have been. But we know what happened, don't we? Through disobedience, just like God said, the people were carried away into exile and the temple was destroyed. When they came back after the 70 years of exile, they rebuilt the temple. And some of the people were grieved because they didn't see the same degree of magnificent in the second temple as they had seen in the first. But God promised that He would bless that second temple as well. And then in New Testament times, we know what King Herod did in order to appease the people. He started renovations and work on the temple for about 16 years before the birth of Christ. Now, according to John chapter 2, verse 20, from the time Herod started working on it until then, it had been 46 years. In fact, the building of the temple would continue until 63 A.D. But in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus pointed out that the second temple would also be destroyed, that not one stone would be left on another. And we know what happened. In 70 A.D., the Romans came in and destroyed that temple. Since that time, there's not been a temple in Jerusalem. Well, in the New Testament, what does the Bible say about the temple? Those who are in Christ are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of God. In other words, the temple is not bricks and mortar or stone. The temple is God's people who are in Christ. That begs the question, will, will the Jews rebuild a literal temple in the end times? You know, we can talk about that all we want. There's different opinions on that. But whether they do or whether they don't, I do want to say this. It, it won't have any type of redemptive type uh, quality to it. God's not dealing with people anymore based upon the Old Covenant. Just read the book of Hebrews. 
All of those things in the Old Covenant are obsolete now. Today, the church, the people, are God's temple. The people of God in Christ are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, the amazing thing in this passage is that Peter takes the language of the people of Israel right out of the book of Exodus, and he applies it to the church now. What Peter says here is almost an exact quote from the first six verses of Exodus 19 where God said that they were to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. They had not been a people, but God chose them and they became the people of God, a holy nation. But again, Peter takes that same passage that was applied to Israel in Exodus 19 and he applies it to the church now. And as the New Testament points out, you know, God is, God's not done with Israel yet. At the end of the times of the Gentiles, God's going to stir the Jew to jealousy and a complete number of Israel will be saved. But what God is going to do is graft them back into the one olive tree that we see in Romans 11. There's not two olive trees. There's only one olive tree. We are the unnatural branches that have been grafted in while the natural branches were broken off, referring to the Jew. They were broken off, Paul says, so that you, the Gentile, can be grafted in even though you're the unnatural wild branch. And Paul says if God is able to graft the wild branch in, it's really no challenge at all for God to turn around and graft the natural branch back in. And that's exactly what God is going to do. And so he says there, uh, in Romans 9 through 11, that a complete number of Israel will be saved. They will come to Christ. But my point is, there's only one olive tree. There's only one people of God. If the Jewish person is going to be saved, it will only be as they come to Christ. And then Jew and Gentile together become one people, one tree, one temple. Folks, Jesus is the living stone. He is the chief cornerstone. He was rejected by men, but he was precious in the sight of God. Men crucified him. But God raised him from the dead. You will either humble yourself before him and fall upon him, or he will fall upon you and crush you. That is, judge you. If you put your trust in him, you will not be put to shame. Every time somebody comes to Christ, it's like a new stone is being added to this temple that is called the people of God. God is indeed building His temple. Again, He's building His church, His people. And every soul that comes to Christ is added to this temple. While we are this temple, Peter says here, we are also a priesthood. Every believer 
is a priest. And what we're doing in this new temple, the church is offering spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our high priest. We enter the presence of God through the high priest. And so in Christ, you and I now, according to verse 9 here, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You and I as Gentiles were once not a people, but now we are the people of God. Again, you see what Peter's doing? Words in the Old Testament that were applied to the Jew, Peter is now applying to those who are in Christ, whether you are Jew or Gentile. Folks, whether you like it or not, the unmistakable language here is that the church is the Israel of God. In Galatians 6.16, 6, Paul calls the church the Israel of God. The true descendants of Abraham, as Paul points out in Romans 2, it's not natural uh, it's not national Israel, the externals, but it's those who have come to faith in Christ. It's not a matter of bloodline. It's a matter of being in Christ. Whatever your nationality is. In the Old Testament, Israel was God's chosen people. They were God's own possession. They were to proclaim the excellencies of Him who had called them out of darkness. They were once not a people, but then they became the people of God. And, and again, Peter, what Peter is doing is taking all of that rich Old Testament language and he's applying it to us now, to those who are in Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? means several things. means you're God's own possession. You're God's temple. You're God's family. You're to be holy because God is holy. There's to be a family likeness between father and child. It also means that as God's people and temple and priesthood, we are to offer the sacrifices of praise to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can go boldly into the presence of God through our high priest, Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have the forgiveness of our sins and we have entry into God's very presence. And folks, just thinking about that ought to fill our hearts with gratitude. You and I had no hope. We were not God's people. But in Christ, we are now His sons and daughters and we can go into His presence. A, a third thing that it implies, we are to proclaim His excellencies. As the hymn says, we've a story to tell to the nations, and we do indeed have a story to tell to the nations. We're to proclaim the excellencies of Him who's called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Finally, as he points out here, we're to live as strangers in the night. We're to live as strangers of the night. He's called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. And so we're to live as exiles, as foreigners, as Christians, 
We are to be different in this culture. The present culture is like darkness. It's like night. But as a Christian, you are a citizen of heaven and you're to shine the light of Jesus. And so folks, Peter is saying here, you and I are to stand out like a sore thumb. We're to stand out being very distinct from this culture in which we live. We're not to be like everybody else around us. We're to live as salt and light because again, we are the people of God who have been brought to salvation by, by God's work. We're redeemed. We're the children of God now who are able to go into God's presence and then we're able to go to people with God's saving message, the gospel. We're to be very different from those around us. As we've said oftentimes, we're in the world, but we're not to be of the world. Notice what Peter says here in verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. You and I are to live in such a way that even unbelievers before God one day will have to give glory to God. So again, folks, I, I want you to think what Peter is saying here. First of all, as I pointed out tonight, He's telling us to desire God's Word, to crave it, to deal with sin in our lives and lay that aside while at the same time we crave God's Word like a newborn baby craving milk. And then secondly, Peter really wants us to understand what our new identity is in Christ. All of the wonderful things God said about the Hebrew people in the Old Testament when He chose them to be His own possession. Peter is applying all that to believers now in Christ. We are the people of God, and as such, we're a holy nation. We're a holy priesthood. And we have work to do. We go before God, we have access through Jesus Christ, and then we go before men proclaiming the excellencies of Him who's called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And so we need to understand that this is our new identity, and we're to be different. We're to be salt and light. We're to be distinct. I want to ask you tonight, as you think about your appetite for the Word of God, do you have the proper appetite? Do you desire God's Word like a child of God should? Ask God to give you that appetite. What about repentance? At the same time you're craving God's Word, are you turning away from those things that you know Grieve the Holy Spirit in your life. Also, think about your identity. Are you living as a, as a priesthood? 
uh, your calling to be priest in a dark world? Do you understand your identity as God's people now? And are you living as a holy nation and a holy priesthood, proclaiming God's praises to a lost and dying world that others can hear, that others can be saved? Such a wonderful chapter in the Word of God. Let me ask you to bow with me in prayer. Father, I pray that as your people that we would display the proper appetite. Lord, we grow up in the world loving the things of the world because when we're lost and without Christ, this world is all that we have. But Lord, once we come to Christ, we need to understand that you have a higher calling on our lives now a higher calling than just gaining things in the world. And so help us to have the proper appetite for your word and the things of God so that we can be about the right purpose in our lives. That we would seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Lord, help us to understand that we are a new people now. We once were not your people. But you've shown us grace and mercy and love in Christ and you've saved us. And so, Lord, help us to understand that we're your temple now. And we're to live that way in a dark world. We're to proclaim your praises and your excellencies. Lord, your, your purpose in us is that we will be lights shining in this world. Lord, from the moment that you save us, you don't, you don't take us to heaven right then and there. You leave us behind on this earth to carry out a ministry. And as Peter is saying here, Lord, help us to live out that ministry day in and day out. So that even when lost people, as Peter says here, even when pagans, those who don't know God, look at our lives, they will see such a difference in us that they will know that the only explanation for the difference they see in us is because you have changed our lives. Lord, help us to be that type of witness. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.